Lord, we do commit our class to you, desiring that uh, uh, you would work in the way that you desire. And we want to be within your will and within your plan and what you have for us. And particularly this morning, as we open up your word in Romans again, that you would speak to us through it and give us uh, more of a foundation that we can uh, reach a, a world that is in desperate need for you. And we desire to be lights in a dark place. We desire that you give us opportunities. In fact, you desire more than we do to reach out to those that uh, do not know you, that those, those that need ministry, those that need an understanding of your word. So we, we desire to be equipped to be able to do that. So we commit our time today in Jesus' name. All right, let's get into the book of Romans. <laughs> No protests on that. <laughs> no protests on the book of Romans, exactly. Well, apparently there were some protests in verses 3, 1 through 8. We're coming close to the end of the first major section of the book of Romans. And perhaps in terms of man's perspective, perhaps the most important part from our perspective because because our hearts are such, as described in this section, is we are suppressors of the truth. We are suppressors of everything that is in this section. So this is one of the longest sections, I think, or subsections, depending on how you diagram it, within the Book of Romans, because the unbelieving heart needs to be convinced of these truths. And and basically, as we've seen, we're talking about man's sinfulness, man's guilt, man's condemnation. We resist that at all costs, because obviously it's too personal, and it's too long-range in terms of eternity, basically. It has eternal issues, and this is just the nature of the human heart to resist this concept. So Paul spends a lot of time, and we've spent some time on it as well, and we're in the portion where he is dealing with the group that would be the most resistant. The group that is always the most resistant are those that are trying to work their way towards God. In other words, they are inclined towards God, but in the human heart we have that desire to earn righteousness, to earn a standing before God, to earn that position of righteousness. So everything in us is working in that direction. So Paul has to deal with that group individually. Connie? There's an article in the current issue of World Magazine by, um, they had an interview with a young man named Ben Shapiro, Shapiro, I don't know how he pronounces it. Yeah, Ben Shapiro. And he's uh, supposed to be the voice of conservatism for young people. And he was talking about his Judaism and why he's a Jew as opposed to being a Christian. And one of the things he said is he said, Jews are more works-oriented. Yes. Christians more works-oriented. Yes. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read the article. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's the human heart. Mm -hmm. Even the Gentile heart is that way as well, but the Gentile generally gives up and says, it's useless. There is no God. There is no God. I want to have a substitute, whatever. So he's dealing with the predicament of this attitude, which is a self-righteous, in other words, self-made, self-established righteousness, 
which in the first century would have been the Jewish mindset. In our culture, it would be people that are raised in, let's say, the church or a spiritual environment, uh, which is a danger if for parents. You raise your children and you want them to learn scripture, you want them to learn the Bible, you want them to have a relationship. So they almost think it's automatic, and this is what the Jews thought. We've looked at this. We've seen the principles of God's judgment, chapter 2, verses 2 through 16, and then Paul endeavors to prove from the basis of God's judgment that Jews are in danger of judgment as well. So he proves their guilt, 17 through 29, and we're looking at the last portion, chapter 3, 1 through 8, where... That resistant heart, that resistant mind, that mindset, if you will, always will come up with excuses or protests or how can this be or what about this? So what Paul is doing, in fact, I guess maybe one of the thrusts that we can gain from here, Paul is doing apologetics. He's giving answers to these protests. We're encouraged in 1 Peter 3.15 to give an answer to those, essentially in that context, that oppose us, to give an answer of the hope that is within us. In other words, be able to answer their protests, to answer the things that are stumbling blocks to them. And this would include the believer as well as even within the believing community or at least the religious community, and that's what he's dealing with here. So he's going to deal with these protests of the Jews, and he's going to give answers to these protests. He's going to look at four of them. We've already looked at two of them. We see, there's just the outline for proof of the Jewish guilt. And in that, from that first portion, it raises issues in the thinking of any Jewish person. This is some of the things that would come to their mind. He's talked about their advantage, and then he concludes almost by saying uh, that it's almost a disadvantage to be a Jew. So that would be a question to ask. If Jews are made almost un-Jewish, uncircumcision is the word that he uses, then uh, it, it almost seems like it's a disadvantage to be Jewish. And Paul has actually almost indicated that that's the case because they're exposed to more revelation. So is it a disadvantage? He answers that. He also says, is the Jew reduced to a Gentile in that little phrase that he uses as their sin makes them or their violation of law makes them uncircumcised? Does this reduce them to Gentiles? Well, the answer to that is no. So he answers that one as well. And ultimately because of all of the covenants and promises and things in the Old Testament, does this make the Old Testament a false witness? And we're going to deal with that as well. Is the Abrahamic covenant broken because of what Paul said? In other words, they're challenging him back to the Abrahamic unconditional covenant that does put Jewish people at an advantage. Well, is it violated or is it broken? And the implication is, is did God break the covenant? And is God unfaithful? So we're going to focus primarily on the last couple in the passage today. So the first objection, just a quick review, the verses 1 through 2. Then what advantage has the Jew? It seems like they're at a disadvantage. 
Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Because he's talked about that in the last part of chapter 2. And the answer, great in every respect. In other words, there are advantages. And we spent a lot of time laying some of those out. And also noting he's writing to a church in the first century during the church age. And he's saying these things that this is true of Jew, Jewish people right now, which would extend to our time. We're in the church age. Great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now that's past. And we made the big point that scripture comes from the nation of Israel or from Jewish people. So that is huge. That is a huge advantage. They are still entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, we can participate in that because we are believers and we believe in those oracles. In fact, we as a church are commissioned to teach and to bring people into a discipleship relationship with God's word. But this is still a Jewish advantage and still a Jewish privilege, you might say, of administering those oracles. So we have the second objection in verses 3 and 4. He answered the first one. The second one, we have the issue in verse 3, and then we have the answer in verse 4. What then if some did not believe, some Jewish people did not believe? Does this nullify everything, in other words? Their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? They violated the covenant. Do you throw out the covenant now? Well, no, because it's unconditional. He goes on, may it never be. And remember the big point I made there? This is the strongest way that you can negate something in the, the Greek language. May it never be. And I gave you a whole list of ways that it could be translated. In no way. Absolutely not. Are you crazy? <laughs> in more contemporary language. May it never be is a, probably a, a very appropriate translation. Rather, let God be found true. God is always true. God is always faithful. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In other words, everyone has violated God's standards in some way, whether it be a covenant or simply the moral law. So we are all guilty, is basically what he's saying. And uh, that allows God to remain faithful regardless of what man does. So let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And now he's going to prove that point from David. The epitome of kingship was David, a man after God's own heart. Yet he was a sinner. And he quotes out of Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, if you remember, we looked at that last time. David admits that uh, God, you may be justified in your words. In other words, everything that you have said is true. And by the way, you could even use this verse for inerrancy. David saw God's word as inerrant. It's true. No falsehood. That you may be justified in your words and that you may prevail when you are judged. Now, he, he, he kind of expands the idea of the psalm here, but he anticipates at any point, whether it be in the past or in the future, when God is accused... God is always going to be vindicated. God is always going to prevail. In other words, his words, even though we're in the middle of history, 
His words will always prove out to be, not only be true, but God, in fact, will be justified. He will prevail. Does that make sense? So it doesn't matter what man does. God is going to remain faithful to his promises and covenants. So the Abrahamic covenant is not violated or nullified. And we talked about, this is still a review, uh, supersessionism is a false doctrine. God is faithful to Israel. We defined that. You hadn't heard of that before. That's just replacement theology, an older theological description of it that was not used so much anymore. But if it pops up in some of the older books, that's what it is. It's just the idea that the church has replaced Israel. And there's some dangers with that. It's not only not a biblical doctrine, in fact, a false doctrine, but it ultimately lays a foundation for what the church did in fact do, which is evil, is got itself into anti-Semitism and stems from this doctrine, which is a false doctrine. We saw that he's faithful to all of his promises. He legally binds himself to his covenants. That's the nature of a covenant. It's a contract. God enters into a legally binding contract, and he's not going to violate it. Israel has got a great future based on all of those covenants. So God is faithful to them. And fifthly, most of the covenants, in fact, all of the covenants will be ultimately and fully fulfilled in the millennium. The uh, Mosaic Covenant, in large measure, is fulfilled in Christ already, but all of it also will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. And we could view the church as not replacing Israel, but as a parenthetical period of time where God is going to restore Israel, if you know eschatology, And the church has a place. It's important as well, but it's not as important as we have made it as believers in the body of Christ. So uh, the proper perspective is somewhat in terms of the overall plan of God, something of, Paul describes it as a mystery, but we might say something of like a parenthesis, where God is temporarily, if you will, dealing with someone outside of Israel. Jews and Gentiles. So, well, that is actually, though, so that uh, he can draw all the world to himself. Yes. Because it could not happen through Judaism. Well, it was intended to happen. It should have. Yes. But it didn't. It didn't. Mm-hmm. And so he is, he has, in the covenant, he had promised that all peoples would come to him. And so when Israel did not step up to that Privilege, Privilege, opportunity. Then he has brought about another way that they all could, because his son fulfilled all the the commands, and that way we are fulfilled through him. Yep, exactly. God, in fact, this is a little background here, all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Before chapter 11, God dealt with humanity in general. In other words, all of mankind. All of mankind in the Tower of Babel rejected, essentially, God and said, we will build a tower. We will reach to the heavens on our own efforts. We will stay together. We will violate what God had commanded. We reject God. We have our own plan. 
After chapter 11, we have the genealogy to Abraham, where God is going to call out a counterculture, his own people, starting with one man, Abraham. From that one man, what God is going to do is give them the privilege of being in a position to, in fact, reach the world. In other words, a counterculture that is to be an example of what life is to be like. And he's going to give him, give them his standards there to display the character of God. And they, the intent was that they would reach the nations. And as Mary Lee says, they failed in that. And God, in this time frame, is using a different means. But those covenants, those promises are still in effect, and there's going to be a day when all of them will come back into effect. God's going to remove the church, by the way, (laughs) and reestablish his work with the nation of Israel. So this is a temporary. 2,000 years is what to God? Nothing. But... It's, from his perspective, a temporary arrangement until he reestablishes his people and they recommit to him. That's eschatology. Anyway, third objection. Here's where we left off, verse 5. So let's take a look at, uh, first of all, the issue in verse 5. Third objection, 5 and 6. He's answering objections. He's doing apologetics. He's explaining these things that would come up in a Jewish mind. And in this, this passage, all the way through verse 8, it, you get the idea that this is something that Paul even encountered. In other words, these are charges that were leveled against some of his teaching, perhaps in other locations. So since they probably already came up in the book of Romans, since he's not there personally, he's going to answer them. This is before he can explain the solution He's laid out the problem, the guilt of all of humanity, that problem that we all resist. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness, remember he's already said, if our lie, you know, what? how does that have an effect on God? Well, it allows God to be true, let God be true, let every man be a liar. Kind of an expansion here. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, in other words, Our sinfulness, our unrighteousness is an advantage to God. Makes God look good. (laughs) It elevates God. If that's the case, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is, is not unrighteous, is he? In other words, it's unfair for him to, you know, he benefits from our unrighteousness. It's unfair for him to judge us. You see the argument here? It's a little twisted, but this is a, a an argument that the unbelieving mind comes up with, and particularly the self-righteous mind. How can God benefit from my unrighteousness? I should benefit as well. So he goes on, the, the God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Because it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right. He's benefiting. He shouldn't benefit. And then he clarifies it, so... We'll get to that in a moment. But God's righteousness is crystal clear in all of the scriptures. So he's going to expand that in his answer. And we can look up several passages that emphasize that. And why don't we read some of these? Isaiah. There's several in other places, but to make it easy, all of these are in Isaiah. Isaiah 5. These are some of the clearest ones. And notice, these are... In the context, some of them, at least the first one, is in the context of God judging. When God judges, his judgment 
is righteous. There's no unfairness there. There's even though yes, God does benefit by contrast. Who's got Isaiah five sixteen? Connie's got it. Uh, Ellen, why don't you look up forty five, and I'll let you read all those others as well. Connie, you got five sixteen. The Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Okay. First part I kind of spoke over you. What did it say there? Uh, The Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. He shall be exalted in judgment, and in the same context. On God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Shall be righteous, hallowed or righteous in that context. So judgment and righteousness together. 4519, you got that one, Ellen? Mm Mm-hmm. I have not spoken in secret. Somewhere in a land of darkness, I did not say to the descendants of Jacob, Seek me in a wasteland. I, Yahweh, speak truthfully. I say what is right. I say what is righteous. So his words are righteous. Verse 21. Speak up and present your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, Yahweh? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. There is no other God that is righteous other than Yahweh. 23 and 24. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said to me, righteousness and strength is only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. All the descendants of Israel will be justified and find glory through the Lord. Okay, that is almost a description of a future fulfillment of what David was saying in Psalm 51. In fact, Paul may have both these passages in mind. Looking at God's vindication of his righteousness. And there's many, many other passages. These are just a few of them just to kind of lay that out. And in the book of Romans, this is the main theme of the entire book. Remember in our introduction, I mentioned this is what holds the whole book of Romans together. The concept of God's righteousness. In fact, the key word is the word righteousness. It occurs over 55 times in the book of Romans. The major theme. Every section of the book deals with the righteousness of God. In fact, we're in the portion where Paul is demonstrating. So this is one of the verses that deals with that. That man is condemned or sinners are condemned because of the righteousness of God and in fact are in violation of the righteousness of God. So in condemning sinners, God demonstrates himself righteous. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. In justifying believers, in other words, that's the next section. God is going to demonstrate his righteousness in that he does punish sin. He does deal with sin. And we're going to look at that in chapter 3, a very key passage in the book of Romans. So by justifying believers, this displays his righteousness. And once a person is a believer, we're going to see in the next chapters, chapters 6 through 8, that God sanctifies believers and he can do it in righteousness also on the basis of what Christ has done. So his righteousness is displayed in sanctifying believers. This is an outline of the book of Romans. 
Number three there is the first major section, condemning sinners. The next section, chapters 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 5, is a section dealing with justification, and God is just in justifying and righteous. And then the next section, uh, Romans 6 through 8, God is righteous in sanctifying, so he's also righteous in restoring Israel. That's the main theme of chapters 9, 10, and 11. So this is a huge doctrine, huge concept of God. So, uh, the last part of verse 5, in arguing here, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? He's saying this whole thing is just kind of human, feudal thinking. I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, he's denigrating this whole argument. This is what comes from a a mind that is twisted by sin, a lost mentality. That's what he's getting at when he says, I'm speaking in human terms. This is not reality. This is not the thinking of God. This is not righteous thinking. This is defective thinking. This is human logic that ends up illogically. So he's going to give an answer in verse 6, or yeah, verse 6 of chapter 3. May it never be again. There's the me genoito. This is impossible. This is ridiculous. This is uh, totally out of line. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? And the first that would uh, raise this issue of God judging the world. Now, when the Jew thought of God judging the world, God's judging the Gentile. And they would throw that out. And Paul kind of broadens it. Cosmos includes all, not just Gentile. It includes the world of the Jewish people as well. So they would not argue with this. God has every right. In fact, there's a yearning within Judaism for God to enter into judgment of those Romans. Judge the Roman Empire. Release us. Bring our day. Bring our Messiah. Judge them, God. And what they don't realize is they're really calling upon God to judge them as well. How will God judge the world? So God as judge is another major theme of Scripture. Genesis 18.25, why don't we read these? Deuteronomy 32.4. Who's got first one there? You will in a minute. Mary Lee's got uh, Genesis. Deuteronomy. Okay, Dwayne, go ahead. 32.4, and who wants to do Hebrews 6.2? Bob? And there's even one in Acts 17.31. And this Acts 17.31 is to an intellectual group, the scientists of the day or philosophers of the day. But let's start with Genesis 18.25. This is Abraham himself. You got it? Yes, I do. Abraham is interceding for Sodom. Yes, he's inter... Well, not so much for Sodom. He's interceding for his relatives at Sodom because God has already announced that he's going to judge Sodom. Can I start... Yes. You have the whole thought? Yes. Abraham Jr. said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are few righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, far be that from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Okay, kind of a similar issue to what Paul is raising. The righteous God will be just, and his judgment will be just. But it seems unfair to judge the believers there, or he calls them the righteous at Sodom, along with the unrighteous. And what God is saying, yeah, if you can, if you can get 50, I'll spare the whole city. I'll be merciful on the whole city if you can find 50. Abraham says, well, wait a minute, there may not be 50. <laughs> yeah. And he gets him down to, to 10, and God says, yeah, yeah, if you can find 10. But apparently he couldn't find 10. I read this morning very dramatic. Drag him out. Yeah, he had to drag Lot and his family out. Yes. Mm-hmm. But he was righteous, he judged, and he spared the believers. Yeah. And that's the basis for the rapture, isn't it? It's um, kind of an illustration mm-hmm. of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I'd say basis of it, but yeah, it's uh, a, a good illustration of the rapture. It's a good illustration of salvation. God pulls out from a corrupt culture those that believe. And Dwayne, you got yep. Deuteronomy 32.4? The rock, his word is perfect, for all of his ways are just, the God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous, upright is he. Okay, he's just. He's a just God. The New American Standard speaks of judgment in that context. Deuteronomy 32, 4. Again, it's putting together righteousness and justice. Hebrews 6, 2. It starts in the middle of a sentence. It says of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are the fundamentals. A fundamental doctrine is God as judge. The Jews would have said the same thing. In fact, Hebrews is written to a Jewish audience. And then Acts 17, 31, after Paul lays out an apologetic argument for a biblical worldview, he convicts them with judgment. Who has that one? Honey. Um, I'll start with 30. Truly these times of ignorance got over, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him. Okay, and that man is Iesu, Jesus, to that Greek audience, right, mm-hmm. in Athens. He has appointed a day of judgment. And the Jew would not contest any of this. So that's kind of his argument there. So that's the third objection. The fourth objection, 7 and 8, stems from what he said in 5 and 6, verse 7, but if through my lie, notice he goes back, the truth of God abounded to his glory. Again, kind of a repeat of a similar argument. God is glorified. It's kind of like the contrast. Uh, You go to a jewelry store when they display diamonds. Have you noticed what they put behind the diamond? The darkest velvet you can find because that dark background brings out the brightness of the diamond and emphasizes it and makes it bigger than life, right? Very enticing. Well, this is the argument he's using. You know, my lie kind of makes God look good, uh, glorifies him. And so, and it abounds to his glory. And if that's the case, God is benefiting. Why am I still being judged as a sinner? I mean, 
it seems there seems to be an inequity here, an unfairness. Similar argument to what we've already looked at, so we don't need to spend the same amount of time. Verse 8, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Because the more evil we do, what? The more glory God gets. So taking that logic to its logical conclusion, the darker the velvet is, the brighter the diamond looks. So he says, and why not say, let us do evil that good may come. And then before we get to let us do evil that good may come, we have a parenthetical statement in there, which indicates, as I said earlier, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, indicating that this is probably an objection that was raised when Paul brought, for example, at Galatia, brought the same doctrine, or at Corinth, or wherever, the doctrine of grace, that man cannot do anything to earn righteousness, and in fact, that concept uh, of God getting all of the glory gets twisted in the process, and those that speak of grace oftentimes are accused of, and it's slanderous, reported as some claim, uh, let us do evil that good may come. Does that make sense? Now, this one, he doesn't even answer. Well, he does answer, but he doesn't give an explanation, if you will. All he answers it with is their condemnation is just. In other words, they are so out of tune with what God says, with God's word, with spiritual concepts, with the nature of God, their condemnation is just. That's the only answer he gives. I like that, that he doesn't like that. really offer any <laughs> argumentation. Things. Right. And by the way, apologetics eventually has to get to the point, if you sense that a person is just raising issues and is not interested in really the answers, their condemnation is just. And that's probably a good place to end the discussion in terms of apologetics. If people are sincerely desiring an answer, if they sincerely have obstacles that you need to overcome for them to be able to understand and to see clearly the gospel message, then continue to give them. Paul deals with four objections here. But the bottom line, if that Jewish heart is hardened and they're just going to keep going on, try to keep putting obstacles in the way, and their heart is resistant and not really interested in the truth, Paul ends it. Their condemnation is just. That's as far as he's going to go. All right? So that ends verse 8. And just kind of in summary here, let's end on a positive note with a positive... uh, Slide there. Notice, and by the way, this is key in apologetics. A key to doing good apologetics, a key to apologetics, always take it back to the nature of God. In other words, if a person has a distorted view of God, everything else is going to be distorted. And this is what Paul does. And this is just an illustration of that. Verse 2, he's talking about the oracles of God or the revelation of God. In other words, he answers a question relating to God, what God has done, who God is. Verse 2, he answers the issue of uh, the advantage. The main advantage is they have the oracles of God. They have the revelation of God. They have the 
Word of God. Verse 3, he answers their issue, the second objection, with the faithfulness of God. God remains faithful. The God of the Bible is a faithful God. Verse 5, we just looked. The God of the Bible is a righteous God. He's going to do everything according to his standards, his righteousness. 6 and 7, there is a judgment, and God is judge. So he speaks of the judgment of God. He contrasts the lie of man with what? The truth of God. God is true. In fact, absolute truth comes from him. Also in verse 7, ultimately, the glory of God. And a good corrective to false doctrine is to look at those ideas from the perspective of the nature of God. And in some way, they will be taking away from the true nature of God. I don't know why this popped up in my mind, but there's a growing movement called open theism. Just as an example. Amongst evangelicals. I know why it popped in my mind, because I'm going to use it Wednesday in my hermeneutics class as an example of a need for hermeneutics. (laughs) Within the evangelical camp, by the way, there are several of these side issues like open theism. You know what open theism is? You never heard of it? See if I can describe it. It elevates man to a point where the decisions of man can override the plans of God. In other words, the future is a little indefinite. Does that make sense? That's why it's open theism. It's the idea that if we pray enough, we can almost move God in such a way that he does what we want. (laughs) Oh, of course. I run into it in so many ways. We just need to pray for this Lord. So you pray for what you want. You pray and you pray because... Twist God's arm. Yeah, yeah, bring in a prayer that surely he's going to do it for you. Yeah. How well has that worked for you? Not well. (laughs) But open theism basically violates the concept of the sovereignty of God and the plan that God has set forth. It also violates the omniscience of God. In other words, God knows all things, and in some cases he's told us what he's going to do. And it doesn't matter what we pray or what we think, he's going to accomplish his goals. Open theism makes all of those somewhat tentative. Anyway, uh, the point I'm making here is we need to go back to the nature of God and it affects the nature of God. It, in fact, can be corrected by a biblical understanding of the nature of God. And this seems what Paul is doing, and it is illustrated in this little passage here. Verse 2, the oracles of God. Verse 3, the faithfulness of God. Verse 5, the righteousness of God. He goes back to who God is, and it answers all of those issues. 6 and 7, the judgment of God. In fact, you could use even uh, verse 8 there as well. Their condemnation is just. In other words, they stand condemned. The truth of God, the glory of God. So that brings us to our closing thought. A proper view of God's nature corrects most faulty doctrines. And that's what Paul is doing in verses 1 through 8. Make sense? And in apologetics, that principle should be applied. In other words, how does this open theism violate who God is? 
Or how do the cults, the cults are blatant, denying the Trinity, for example. But even within evangelicalism, how does this square up with who God is? And if it violates who God is, then uh, obviously it is not biblical. Who wants to close for us? Mary Lee. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have not left us on our own to wander around and try to cobble together an understanding of who you are and who we are for you. I thank you for this, this training.